Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. Well, we are continuing in our series on hard questions about the Christian faith, and we are actually in our last episode now, and we're going to be moving on to a new series coming up after this. But our last question about hard questions concerning the Christian faith is, what is the Christian view on politics? And we're going to answer this one a little bit differently, uh, because we're not going to all go through and give a direct answer to that. Instead, we're just going to start, Doug, would you give us a bit of a framework just even before we step into the political question as a whole, how do we think about the ideas of government? Yeah, one of the things for government is we have to have a right view of it, that the government is a good thing. It's a blessing from God for society, but it's also not our savior. So we have to be appreciative and thankful to the things that the government has done for us, but then also realize it's not where the Christian places their hope. So we look at a passage like Romans 13, where Paul is encouraging the Roman church to submit to the government. Um, He says, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only, to avoid, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So he's making these arguments that we're supposed to follow the rules of the government for the sake of conscience, because they are an avenger of God. And he's talking about the Roman government, which is not like a holy Christian government. This is the government that's about to kill him in the next yeah. couple of decades. It's a government that's persecuting Christians. If you go over to First Peter, Peter also um, tells us to submit to the government. Um, let's see. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And again, Peter here is within a decade of Nero killing him. And he's saying, we have to submit to the government. And so that's a fascinating statement that both of these guys are making with governments that were sometimes neutral to Christianity, often hostile, often wicked, but they're still making a claim that these are from God as authorities and that they're to submit to them. And I think that almost doesn't make sense to us a lot of times, but we're seeing here that government itself, even bad governments with evil leaders, selfish leaders who abuse their power, manipulate, there's still a blessing that God has there. And the government often doesn't (laughs) build the kingdom of Christ in the same way that Christ does by dying, giving up his life, submitting, um, caring for others. But there is a power that's in government that both has good things and negative things. So Peter does give a constraint to the government he says that they're to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good and to the extent the government is doing that it is following what god has designed but when it's not doing that it's outside the kind the confines of what god's intending so there are times where christians are disobeying the government um you see that with martin luther king you see that with the early disciples Um, but then we still have to hold that the government is actually good. And I think sometimes it's easy to be pessimistic and see here are all the ways that our government is obviously failing, failing the poor, failing to protect the unborn, failing to protect the environment, failing to protect immigrant children, like all these different ways that we can see oh, there's issues that are going on that can lead us to just be pessimistic about the government. But it makes me think of a Monty Python skit 
where they ask, what have the Romans ever done for us? And it's just these people like gathered around and say, what have the Romans ever done for us? They came in, they took over our lands. And then some of the people in the audience just said, what about the aqueducts or the roads or peace? It's nice that we can travel on the roads now without being assaulted. And just there's all these things that we can take for granted that the government actually does that are good just because we're aware of the issues that it has. And so I think from the Christian view, we're to be thankful for the government, we're to submit to it, and we can also have a critique of where does our government support good and punish evil, and where is it not in line with God's kingdom? And be appreciative for the things, but also critique the ways that it's different and varying from God's kingdom. Yeah. I think that's some good insight. I don't think I would typically, or my, my natural disposition is not to be grateful for the roads I drive on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about that myself. Actually, somebody mentioned that in my class. It's like, ah, I just drove 60 miles here on the interstate. And ah, that's actually a really good thing. Driving back and forth to Colorado this summer, it's like, wow, I should really be thankful for President Eisenhower, but I don't even think about that. The blessings yeah. that are there from our government is so easy to take for granted. Yeah. So then that, that perspective then is, that's the governmental perspective, Doug, and you were going to say something else. Oh, I was just wondering, what other thoughts do you guys have on just how do we view government? Yeah, there's, it. it is kind of just, hard to know in a lot of ways how to view it because there's so many different ideas there's uh it's one of those topics that's pretty can get pretty heated pretty quickly or um just so many varying approaches to it that i think that's as i think about this topic it's still a process i'm trying to think through you know how do i approach this um as a believer how do i operate in it Mm -hmm. and um how do i how do i view it as well and i think that kind of like we're talking there can be this spectrum where sometimes um sometimes i think that we can treat anything kind of the root of sin is treating anything as a functional god saying this is what's going to save us this is what's going to give us hope um this is what's going to if if this is in place, then my life will be worth living, then everything will be okay. I think that politics is definitely one of those areas where this can happen, or maybe I see it happening quite a bit of, um, on one side, if you think if there was just the right policies in place, everything would be perfect and almost looking for a utopia that a policy can bring about where in reality, um, there's, Mm -hmm nothing that I think can ultimately satisfy our souls and like even if we had the exact right political policies I don't think they would solve all the problems that maybe people think that it might if we just had the right policies in place I don't know if it would create the utopia or even just the um, fulfillment and satisfaction in our souls that we often would think that that would happen just like anything in our lives we think if I'm financially secure I'll be satisfied if I have the right relationship if I'm with this person then I'll be satisfied and it lasts for like a day or two you know and then you feel empty again but on the other side of it too there's a reality that some of the policies and things we're talking about can have huge impacts on people and Mm -hmm. uh the uh, perspective that we're even approaching this from is a lot different than some other people where for me um you know it doesn't really matter too much (laughs) like i haven't really felt the impact of one president or the other in many ways at all i mean in some ways but um Mm -hmm. even as i think about who's going to become president next year it's just not it's it's not on my mind that constantly of like what impact this is going to have on me because my life will probably look pretty similar but there's some people that's not the case and um some and i think we had talked about this maybe you guys can shed more light on that but that certain policies could be life-changing um for their family for uh the status of their citizenship for um other things like that so it's important to realize that I think for myself yeah 
Yeah, Greg, I think that is helpful <clears throat> insight. And I'll, I'll give a little bit more of an answer, but I think even what you're saying of the degree to which even this discussion, I think will affect some people is varying. And this is where, you know, just right out of the gate, like even qu discussions of like privilege and things like that, I think are actually somewhat helpful. Um, yeah. Because, you know, then this is one where we're beginning to get into some of the politics or what's considered somewhat political. But I think even just like recognizing for me, understanding the ideas of privilege, meaning like having certain advantages because of things completely outside of my control. Mm -hmm. And when I think of that, for me being a white man in this country, there is a lot of privileges that comes with that. And Greg, I think that's a little bit of what you're saying is like there are some huge implications for some people. The question of who's going to be our next president might be, is my family going to continue to be allowed to live in this country? And so just even there, like thinking about this spectrum of issues, or if you think about um, the way certain policies have affected um, different groups, yeah, th there's, there's huge impacts of certain political decisions. And so we want to make sure to never... I'd say never mitigate that in the reality of uh, that the government, like you're saying, Doug, cannot be a savior. Because even if you get the right governmental circumstances, there's still a fundamental human issue, which is sin, which is also the same thing that's blossoming in our political systems when we see corruption. Mm -hmm. um, which but I would say solved by political policy. What'd you say, Greg? Which isn't going to be solved by a political policy. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. And so you can have a good political policy. You could have all biblical political policies, but the issue is you're still going to have humans governing it. Um, and and I think that's just the story of the beginning of the scriptures where humanity falls into sin to the end where Christ is bringing about his kingdom and redeeming it. Um, a little bit of how I'd think about the, that's just an intro, but a little bit of how I think about the idea of government is there's a scene in First Samuel where um, Israel was not yet established with a king like the other nations around them. And sort of the design of Israel is that God would be their ruler, he would be their king. Mm -hmm. And they, they're looking around at all the other nations around them and they're saying, we want a king, we want a king like that. And... Samuel, who's God's spokesman, spokesman at the time, he's a prophet, is uh, distressed by that because he doesn't believe that that's the right thing to do. Uh, so 1 Samuel 8, 6 says, But the things displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, and I, this is what is incredible to me, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Israel's looking around, they're seeing the way that other nations are governed. They're saying, we want political salvation. We want a king. And Samuel knows this isn't going to bring about the results that they think it's going to bring about. They're going to get a terrible king who's going to rule over them harshly. And God says to them, okay, we're going to do it. And you're going to warn them about the king that's going to reign. But Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And I connected this verse as I was thinking about it to John... Um, 19 because in John 19 is when Jesus who is truly the king of the universe who's the king of the world he comes into the world mm -hmm. and he has a kingdom that operates fundamentally differently than the kings of this world mm -hmm. but there's in John 19 verse 15 the crowd says it says they cried out away with him away with him crucify him Pilate said to them shall I crucify your king and then the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Hmm. And I just think that that's interesting of the people crying out, we have no king but Caesar. And I think that what we see coming up in those instances of we want to be reigned like the other people of this world. We want a kingdom like that. 
here's your king, he's going to rule terribly. Then the true king comes, they don't recognize him, they crucify him and say, we have no king but Caesar, Caesar's our Mm -hmm. king. And I think that's where we sit even politically now, um, where I do think that people wouldn't say it's maybe salvation, but I think a lot of people are looking to the government for salvation. And they're believing that if they elect the right ruler with the right policies, society will fall into place mm-hmm. and all their issues will be solved. And I think that that as we look at, yes, there is a reality to the government. It's a blessing and it's a good thing. And there are real issues of justice that are brought out and denied by the government. Mm-hmm. And yet, even the government in the human sense, in the greatest form, will never be able, like you're saying, Doug, to bring about the kingdom of God, that only Christ through his life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign in return will be able to actually bring that type of kingdom about. So that's kind of how I'd begin to set the framework for that. Mark, you're right that it's so easy for any of us, Christians included, to put our hope in the government being what brings about change. And there are things that the government does change and can change and really should change to be to bring about justice in the world. And so we recognize that there is a power in government that we can be a part of, that we can influence, which is even just a blessing in the United States. But then the question becomes, what is that? look like and I think throughout church history there's been a lot of confusion a lot of mistakes a lot of wondering what is the relationship that the church has to the state how do we build the kingdom of God can we do that by the power of the government and I think in the U.S especially among the dominant evangelical church or the white church, there's been this idea of, okay, we're in power, we have the voice. And for a long time, the church did have that voice in the U.S. And now we're at a spot where it seems like, oh, we're losing that voice, we're losing that position of power. I think, honestly, we've already lost it. I think people tend to think that the church has more influence than it really does. But I think what we're seeing in politics especially in the last few years, as well as just kind of in general where the parties are going. I think the church has lost its voice and lost the ability to speak into culture in general. So we had that for a while. And the question is, what did we do with it? Did we use it well or not? Should we have tried to build the kingdom by the sake of aligning with government? There's all those questions that are there. But whatever... We think about the past right now we are i think moving to a spot where we're realizing oh we don't as the church have the authority to build the kingdom of god by the government what are we going to do and i think the answer to that is we have to be yeah. the church we're supposed <clears throat> to build the kingdom of god as we've always been supposed to do it and i think right now there's in some ways a blessing because we don't have the option to think I can build the kingdom by my political alignment right now. Or at least that's, I think, becoming more clear. <laughs> Not everybody would agree with me on that. Yeah. Um, I think that there are ways that being politically involved are a part of building the kingdom. I'm not saying we should just abdicate and all become monks. But realizing, okay, there are things that we need to be about on this globe global level, on a national level, state, local level, in terms of government, but how are we going to bring about the kingdom? Uh, We're going to do that in communities, in the church, in the ways that Christ built his kingdom. What, Doug, maybe this is a harder question than we're ready for right now, but what about the perspective then, if the Christians can't build the kingdom of God where people say, but didn't the evangelicals elect Trump? But I think, I think what I'm trying to say is like, it's, I think it would be hard for evangelicals to believe that we are leading the charge and the voice of where we're going as a nation. And that most people, even those who have voted 
often those who have still voted for Trump or whoever are saying, oh, we have to choose the best of two bad options. We have to get carried along. So I think the church probably right now feels like that rather than leading politically, it's being dragged along to choose the best of two options. And at least that is a perspective that's different. And it'll be interesting to see to what extent people say like, Oh, I can't fit here right now. And I think just one more thought on how will the church deal with losing some of its political power. One of the options that we have is to actually learn from the minority church in the U S that has been in that spot of being oppressed out of power for the history of our nation. So will we even just have the humility to learn from people who have been in this position for centuries? And how is it that the black church in the U.S. has been faithful to Christ, has grown, has sought to engage politically? Yeah, will we have any humility to learn from other people who have been out of power as the church as a whole moves out of power? Will I do that individually? I hope so. Um, yeah. Anyways, so that's just another thought. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, any other thoughts on just the idea of those things or I guess either of you on thoughts on ties between conservatism, evangelicalism, political right, and sort of the mixed bag of those ideas that we exist in a little bit culturally. Yeah, I mean, I guess just one thought is like, and this this kind of has come up a lot in conversations with um, Christians and with non-Christians as well. This has come up quite a bit as uh, just asking why, um, like, I, I'm trying to think of the exact phrasing. I can't remember off the top of my head, so I'll try to paraphrase how people have kind of asked it. But like, if Christians are like, why are so many Christians like conservative or do you have to be a conservative to go to your church something like that um, along those lines and what we kind of talk about is what are primary issues and what are secondary issues um, with just our faith and I'd say that something like which way you vote is definitely something that's not a primary thing or shouldn't be a primary thing for church membership but like the things that we like what's going to divide us and what's going to cause us to say we will not partner together. Um, and I think about this sometimes there's like different organizations on campus that we work with. And uh, yeah, I something about like if someone has certain convictions that would lead them to vote a different way than I do, I'm not going to let that be something that would divide us in terms of partnering together for the gospel. But, and so yeah, I think that as churches, that's something that we shouldn't have as something that be is dividing us. Um, I think it's something we should talk about and think about why do we come to, I, I mean, more in a personal level, probably not as much up front, but, or maybe up front, I don't know. Um, why do we make the decisions we make? That's important. But um, yeah, what's primary is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the authority of the word of God. It's that um, Christ died for our sins to bring us to God and Jesus plus nothing, you know, uh, that's, that's what we're about. Uh, Jesus is God in the flesh, those things that'll divide, I'll divide with people on those things if they think differently on those things. But if people are, uh, voting differently or something, that's not something that should divide us. We should be able to love and partner with people who have, different thoughts in this arena um and kind of along the same lines is i guess maybe different lines but how do you even decide how much to be engaged or how do you decide how much to get involved with politics or think about it i think that even there there's just gonna be a variety of different callings that we all have and uh some people it might be a lot more some people it might be less and I mean, if God's calling for you is to be a senator or a congressman, then clearly, you know, it's going to be a bigger part of your life. And I think that my tendency over the past 
couple of years has become more and more like not always giving people as specific of exactly here's what you do with this in this situation especially with something like politics but more um an encouragement to just have the disposition of life be i'm going to totally submit to the word of god i'm going to be live my life in prayer and seeking to submit to the spirit and if those things are in place i'm going to submit to god's word i'm going to submit to the spirit i'm going to do everything in love um then let's consider how do we move forward and what's God calling you to the, in this area. Um, if if the other things aren't in place first, then I think that's where most of the tension comes from. And most of the things that have gone wrong are uh, when those foundational things aren't in place and then it gets <laughs> uh, all just really messy and jumbled and uh, things aren't being done in love or it's becoming a primary issue and it's not even in line with how we're called to live in the word as believers and so um, that's when things are just going to get totally wacky and um, way more divisive and um, not even you know what we're called to as believers but if those things are in place then then let's see where's the Lord leading you uh, in this area, how involved are you to be? And it might be, it's probably going to be different for different people and what you're called to. And it might be joining a campaign or something, you know? <laughs> and mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And back to that question, Mark, of even just political involvement, um, there's room to have a clear conscience and vote for the Democratic Party for certain reasons that align with the kingdom of God. There's room to have a clear conscience and vote for a write-in. There's room to have a clear conscience and vote for the Republican Party. I mean, any of these, you kind of feel at least some sense of tension. And we're not like all trying to like share exactly where we are politically, um, because it's hard to like say, oh, this is the Christian view means aligning with this party. But part of what we're saying is to say the Christian view is aligning with this party isn't the right paradigm. I was in a class with doctors Carl and Karen Ellis. It was just the theology of the minority church in the U.S. And one of the points that they were making is that if Christians are ever cho- forced to choose between two options that are given to us by the world we're not going to fit. And both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have some of their platforms that align with the kingdom of God and the way that we would read that and some things that we would say, like, don't align. And now you're going to have Christians that very even would disagree with me on that statement. Um, But I think right now, politically, there's this idea that to support one party, you must support all of its ethics and all of its platform. And if we're discerning, it's hard for us to do that as Christians. I don't think it's possible to say, I align with everything of this party. And if we do, we got to be... Like, are we actually yeah. checking this <laughs> by scripture yeah. and by the word? Um, yeah. And so I think there's freedom, even just to get to the simple level of how do you vote, which is not the most important thing in politics. I think it's what we talk about probably the most and what gets brought up. But even just that, getting to that question of how do you vote, I've got godly Christian friends who vote across the spectrum. And I'm totally fine with that. I'm okay with that. I think in high school, that would have seemed like, no, you have to vote Republican. Like, how could you even go to church if you don't? And then realizing over time, oh, okay. My opinions on a lot of these things have changed and it's all a mixed bag. And so I think that's where we have to also say, like, to vote for one platform even the platform that I would be voting for things that I appreciate and things that I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think if you can't recognize that Doug, if you can't recognize the things, the issues in a party you vote for, you probably are. Yeah. Just not able to, like you're saying, able to honestly assess it. And that's where I think even the ties between like, it's interesting for me working 
at a church that has evangelical in its name because Calvary Bible Evangelical Free Church. And because I, I mean, I definitely identify as an evangelical yeah. um, with with myself being the one who can explain what that means, which evangel or euangelion is mm-hmm. Greek word for gospel, like the good news of Jesus Christ is what I'm about as an evangelical. Mm-hmm. But politically or in our culture, it's I think it's often the term has come to mean conservative um, voter or something like that, a Republican, and the idea of, like, God and country being so uniquely tied together of, like, an evangelical position is, like, a right-wing position. And so even when I explain then, or when that term is used, it it always feels like there's a a big need when I talk to people, especially who aren't Christians, of, okay, what do I mean when I say that? Uh, When I say I'm at Calvary Bible Evangelical, what do I mean by evangelical? And it's not that we stand up front and say, here's the candidate who you vote for, but it's we stand up front and we say, this is the good news of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. that informs all of our life. And, And I think that's where even... I think one of our things we need to be careful of is how much we tie, for someone from any perspective, how much we tie political views as a test of orthodoxy. Yeah. What I mean by that is like, if you, like, oh, I know you're a legitimate Christian if you support this, this, and this bill. Now, in all fairness, there are some issues that really actually are often a test of orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... I wouldn't maybe identify them primarily as political issues, but when we do come to issues where we're talking about the dignity and value of every human being, mm-hmm. like there there actually do become issues where they sort of sit in the political sphere. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing. Some of those issues sit in the idea of political sphere in the same places where we discuss our taxes. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about the value and dignity of... Um, unborn lives and the care for immigrants or the care for all the, like all those issues or the poor, the oppressed, which I mean, the orphan and the widow. Yeah. Yeah. The orphan, the widow. And, and that's clear biblically. I mean, like some of those, how we go about those things is not always super clear biblically, how we go about the policies. That's where it gets a little confusing, but like, what is good, O man? And what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Like, the idea of justice, and that's Micah 6, 8, is required of God's people by him. Mm-hmm. To love religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James one twenty six, I think it's one twenty six or 27. But um, even there, like, there is a requirement on the Christian of justice, of mercy. Like, that is a requirement. And so to care for the unborn life, to care for the orphan, I think there's core issues that we can discuss in this that we want to be careful not to push into politics and say, hey, you do you, I'll do me. It's like, no, there's certain things about the dignity and value and worth of every human life that do become core fundamental realities of how we should live as Christians. But the policies that we put in place are often, I think, where the disagreements can come about um, and where they often do come about. So anyways, all that to say, uh, when I term evangelical, even that one is one that needs a ton of explanation in today's culture, I think in part because of this tie between politics and Christianity and I think in many ways because political right has masqueraded as Christianity um, or just a strong conservative view. And that's predominantly, like we're saying, in the white mm-hmm. church. Um, whereas if you would grow up in more of a minority or black church, typically that would not be the case that the Republican Party would be the predominant view. You know, So it's coming from our perspective again. Yeah. I think even just this question is like, are we a Christian nation? Are we losing that? Has our country gone from a good to a worse place or has it gotten better? It really does depend on where you're at. If you, a hundred years, would we rather live a hundred years ago or now? If you're a black Christian, this country's a much better place to live now than it was before. If It's not I, there I think, yet though. As I was reading some of the books that, 
<laughs> no, no. Um, but like if I was reading, as I was reading some of the books from just a lot of black pastors today and in the past realizing, oh, I can often think about America as like a Christian country, but as the slaves are singing songs, America is Egypt. It's not Israel. And I think increasingly yeah. in the white church as well, there's a sense of, oh, there are good things that we're doing as a country that we do want to respect and value. But, oh, do we see ourselves as God's chosen nation? Or do we see ourselves as Babylon or Egypt? Like, oh, I think that kind of even perspective on how do we view America is changing, which is interesting. Mark, you yeah. mentioned doing justice, Micah 6, 8. One of the things that our grandpa said is it's much easier to love justice or to approve of it than to do justice. Like that's, that's a pretty good point. It's not just enough to oppose injustice. We have to build justice. But think about that biblical value for justice. How do you think Christians should consider, think about, social justice because again we're stepping into debated territory here yeah yeah i think it's it's one of the it's social justice obviously is a trigger Mm -hmm. word um in terms of culturally it triggers certain emotions whether those be positive or negative and um but i think if if we were to define it or you were to define it but i think the idea of should Christians be involved in justice? Is social justice something that is a requirement of Christians? Some of those questions, and I've heard different Christians answer questions along those lines in different ways, but I think a perspective I would say is when it comes to being engaged in issues of justice in our world, I do think that that is part of God's design of his people. And I think that can play out in politics. And so even just to give one specific example, um, and this, I guess this falls in line with often where I think sometimes people are opposed to issues just because of their political affiliation mm-hmm. or because they think they have to be. And so um, from like a conservative standpoint, the ideas of privilege, I think, are often looked down upon and people think privilege, like what are you, what are you talking about my privilege that I have? But I think privilege is something that I've absolutely come to accept wholeheartedly and not, not in every ramification that everyone would say about that or maybe necessarily agree with every way that people would try and then solve issues of that. But the reality of like as understanding that as a white man, I do have certain privileges. And I grew up, I mean, if you think about it, I grew up in a family with two parents who loved each other. Like that is a huge blessing, a huge privilege. I don't deserve that. I grew up in a good school system. I was homeschooled for a while, went to public school, was in a good public school, had a good education. Um, I had a lot of people who were positive influences and mentors in my life. I grew up in a Christian home where I was given the scriptures. Mm. Like if if I can't look at those things and say, there were privileges and advantages that I got that not everyone got, I think that's just Mm. absurd. Um, And even to think society, like in terms of society, are there ways in which I am privileged because I'm white. I really do think there are. And so when we begin to look into some issues, and I'll just give like a periphery one or two issues. One of the big ones is I think of issues like the prison pipeline, which if you're not aware of what that is, it's, it's definitely worth looking into and understanding. Um, think of something like the prison pipeline, where <clears throat> prison pipeline essentially is the idea that there's an intentional design to get more people into prison at times. And as some people hear that, they think that's so, you know, like, how could that be designed to get people in prison? But when you look at the history of the United States and even where we're at, um, a lot of prisons right now are privately owned. And so, like, certain corporations privately run those prisons as a business contracted by the government. And they'll be hugely influential in lobbying for political um, positions. Mm-hmm. And so that that reality of like the p- lobbying of prisons for things like mandatory sentencing so that when people are convicted of a crime, 
that they're required to stay in prison for a longer time. And so a lot of the issues with that is that I think there's a large influence of policies like that that actually do disproportionately affect minority and black communities. And when you begin to jump into issues like that and think of um, some of those realities, it, it is pretty influential. And another issue somewhat related with that, the idea of prison, is even the penalization of certain drugs. Like, for example, um, cocaine was penalized at a certain rate in our history, and um, crack cocaine was penalized at a much more severe rate. And the reason that that was done, this was, was that back in the 60s, Doug? I don't Doug? know the exact date, um, sir. Might have been a little later. It might, it might have been the 60s or 90s. Yeah, I, I looked into it, and that law is actually about crack cocaine being penalized more than cocaine is from 1986. But anyways, the reality of like crack cocaine being penalized at a certain rate because it was being used predominantly by minority and black communities. And so whereas the cocaine was being used by more upper-class white communities, so even like you think about policies like that, and there's those are just two small examples. Um, or but the reality is there are certain political issues that are set in place, and so a lot of I think the heart behind social justice is we want to look at the injustices that are systemically set up, systematic issues and prejudice in our heart, but systematic issues and say what are the real issues that we should confront and we should stand against? And so there become certain issues where, I, where I'm like, yeah, I, th- I think that really is a valid, healthy critique. And there are systems of governing and ruling that really can be oppressive. So all that to say, social justice, I think it's helpful for Christians to be able to understand issues of privilege, even as from a Christian perspective, understanding everything that we have is grace. Um, but then there are people who do not have the same privileges. And I think that's just like clear fundamental reality of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. I think one just other aspect of that social justice is that as we look at the social justice movement, sometimes people want to affirm all of it or to deny all of it. Totally. But again, that's something that as a Christian isn't possible for us. No. And so if no. we look at the entirety of social justice and we say, are we going to accept all of it or not accept all of it? Oh, that's that's actually a pretty confusing spot to be in. But there's absolutely aspects of social justice that are in line with what Christ calls us to. And we ought to wholeheartedly affirm that. And yeah. I think there's also this question of like, oh, if we get into social issues, if we care about the poor, if we care about minorities, if we care about orphans, if we care about... Um, immigrants are we going to distract ourselves from the gospel and i think that ends up being the question um but then what do we even mean by the gospel because yes the core of the gospel is that we are alienated from god but because of the life death and resurrection of christ having faith in him we can be reunited to walk with him but that's not the end of this. The gospel certainly restores a relationship with God, but it's also to restore us to be God's people who live as his image bearers. And being an image bearer of God is for the whole of our lives. And that includes how we relate to others. It includes how we relate to ourselves. It includes how we relate to the environment. And to see God's plan of redemption is not just to pop us out of being unbelievers and then get us to heaven someday later on, but to actually restore us in the image of Christ now and to do that as the church. And so one of the questions is even just what does it look like to be faithful to the gospel or to be faithful as God's people? And this is one where um, Dr. Karen Ellis has been really helpful to me. And one of the things that she said is that there is a narrative running from Genesis to Revelation throughout the whole of the Bible. And at the core of that is God saying, I will be their God and they will be my people. And it paints this picture of what is it to be the people of God? What does it look like to be God's church? 
And her statement is that to the extent that we're lined up with that narrative from Genesis to Revelation is the extent to which we are being faithful as God's people. Hmm. And what's helpful in this idea is that there are a lot of narratives that people have. There's narratives that I have about the world and how it's constructed and how it's going. There's narratives that you have. There's narratives that the Republicans have, that the Democrats have. There's a social justice narrative. There's a lot of different stories going on. And I like to think, oh, my narrative is right. But there's obviously gaps and holes in how I understand God's working throughout the whole world. And I can see, even from non-Christian narratives, gaps or holes in what I believe. And the social justice movement and the things that they're purporting are things that I wouldn't have thought about a decade ago. But there's aspects of what they're saying that do reveal holes in my picture of what it looks like to be faithful as God's people. And there's things that I did not care about a decade ago that God cared about and that social justice cares about. And even if someone who's in social justice is godly following the Lord, or if they're not, if they're pointing out something that God actually does care about, that needs to be a part of my narrative. And that needs to be a part of what it looks like to be the church. And just one aspect of this is that as Christians, we need to see the gospel as the whole of life, the whole of what God is doing to bring about redemption, to be faithful as his people, and to have the humility to learn from those who even disagree with us so that we can follow the Lord more fully. And then even just realizing that our hope is, coming back to kind of my last thoughts, is that our hope as Christians are not ultimately in the government but the government is a good thing, and being involved there matters. But I think we're seeing in the church as a whole, okay, we don't have the power to enact whatever we want in this country. And that is normal for church history. That is normal worldwide. But then what does it look like for us to live... um, as an alternative witness, as the kingdom of Christ, that's not specifically Democrat, that's not specifically Republican, but that is Christ-like, that is Mm -hmm. self-sacrificing, that is the beauty of the church. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Is that the witness that the church is having? I think we've got an opportunity in our society right now to be that kind of witness that is distinct from the world. And I think one of the things we've said a few times is just, we don't want it to be that Christianity is tied with a political party. Yeah. Although there's sometimes where we will vote for one party or the other, because we are trying to do the best that we can, but to realize, Oh, Christianity isn't just a subset of a party. But Christianity is the kingdom of God being built on this earth. His people who are following him, who do care about justice, love kindness, and want to walk humbly with our God. Cool. Thanks, Doug. Ultimately, the question is, how are we lining ourselves up, like you're saying, Doug, in the trajectory of what God is doing in the world? And the reality is, I think we are in a unique cultural moment because there are so many issues that are coming to the forefront. And I think one of the challenges that we face is, are we able, like you're saying, to hear the perspectives that are different than ours, the experiences that are different than ours, the narratives that are different than ours. And as we look at a a culture that is coming off um, years of struggle with racism, with, um, yeah, struggle with racism, with, issues of injustice, with issues of poverty, are we able to look into those issues honestly, wherever we come from, and be able to hear the pains, the struggles, the realities? And are we able to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? And I think something also that's helpful to keep in mind is there are thousands and thousands and thousands of issues that you can engage in. And Something that I think can be dangerous is to sort of evaluate your own value or how much you trust others by their ability to have all the right answers Mm -hmm. on all the problems at all times. 
as opposed to understanding like there is so much complexity to the world we live in and there are so many pains and issues and even as we understand that we are finite that God is infinite, we are finite, we have a limited amount of time, a limited amount of energy, and a limited amount of resources in our lives that we can give. Really, I think the question is, what does the Lord put in our lives to engage with? What does it look like in our lives to um, love and walk humbly with our God? What does it look like in our lives to love and care for the poor? And, and I think that may look different for different people. Some people may feel themselves called to full-time work mm-hmm. it, dealing with issues of sex trafficking or full-time work in uh, other areas. And some of us, it may be to just be faithful to continue to pray or maybe give a little bit to organizations that we know are partnering and are helping to feed the poor. And so I think just that idea of we have to be careful of not taking these issues and viewing ourselves as God, as the Redeemer, the one who will bring about the kingdom of God, but to know that God is faithful, that through the life, death, resurrection, and return of Christ, he will make all things new, and that even now he is working in this world to restore and to redeem. And really the question is, what what areas has God put in our lives, put before us? What relationships, what what things has he given us, put in our hands that we can be faithful with? And I think that's more the question of let's hear, let's understand the hurt, the pain. Let's not become overwhelmed. Let's not forget who is God and who is in charge and who will bring about the kingdom. Lest we repeat the same mistake and believe that by our power or by our political kingdoms, we can actually enact the kingdom of God and then turn to it as our savior. But I think that like you're saying, Doug, Let's see what God's doing in the world. Let's be humble. Let's know that we're limited. And let's say, okay, God, what do you have for me? How can I how can I engage in this work that you have? And to be faithful to do that. And and I think that's that's humility. It's loving mercy and that's walking humbly with our God, which is what we are called to in Christ. Cool. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.